Welcome back to Let Him Roar Again. I'm Amy Perry and joining me again today is Julia Billington. Julia is a NIDA graduate, a director, an actor, a performance and music coach, a teaching artist with Bell Shakespeare uh, and so much experience in that area. We've talked earlier in episode one about uh, teaching artists and Shakespeare and part two we'll be looking at physicality and Shakespeare. Welcome, Julia. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be back. Let's um, dive in. When we think of Shakespeare, especially coming from a school context, there's a lot of emphasis on the text, uh, even to the point of sitting down and reading through the text. Your background includes a lot of training uh, with City in New York. How does that physical theatre training influence the way that you approach Shakespeare's plays? Um, I think it adds to the text. Mm. So there's no denying that you do need to study the text in Shakespeare. Um, if you don't understand a word, you can't move forward from that place. So there's no denying that the sitting down and the working out what the text is saying, um, it, you can't skip that. It's a crucial element. Um, you're talking in the context of if you're about to stand up and perform those words yourself. You must know what those words are saying. Um, once you have an understanding of what the words are doing, um, well, then it's just like any other piece of non-naturalistic uh, theatre um, where you, you have a whole myriad of choices as to the world and how you might want to perform it. Um, and so having a physical theatre background, um, it, it really, it's a fancy way of just saying, I've done a bunch of training in tools that analyse things from the use of space and time. Um, and so if you look at whatever, you pick a random scene out of a Shakespeare play, um, yes, you've got text analysis. And then from that, all of the relationship and the given circumstances analysis, um, the training that I've got from, well, initially the kind of the, the taste test from Zen Zen Zo back in the day at Brisbane as a teenager, um, and then more refined later on with City Company, um, it, it has given me tools to analyse it from a sense of the use of space and time. So we take these words and we have a body in space and in time that is saying these words in this given context. Um, from there, you, you have this incredibly beautiful open canvas as to how you choose to make art. Um, uh, What's the world? Are we in a naturalistic play? Okay, great. That's going to dictate a certain set of rules that we all know and want to live by. Um, and so then the physicality uh, must adhere to a certain set of rules. Are we not naturalistic? We're going for um, a, a heightened world of um, let's go with slapstick comedy. Um, great. Here are another set of rules and things that the training of really dissecting um, and undoing the hierarchy of um, the relationship leading why we create or how we create actors on stage and having a whole other bunch of tools to undo and dissect time and space, um, we can come up with a whole bunch of cool different things. So the training of physical theatre when applied to Shakespeare um, is, is another toolkit you can add on top of all of the other things. 
we still need textual analysis. It is crucial. Um, we still want to know about um, uh, performative analysis and Stanislavski technique as to what are you doing and what's your relationship, what's your given circumstances. It, it's still effectively kind of part B of textual analysis. Um, physical theatre is then well, how are we going to tell this story? What's the world? What's the genre? What's the flavour? Um, uh, and, and then if, you know, you're lucky enough to be the director, that will lead you into choosing colour palettes and um, soundscape design and lighting design. Um, it will lead you into the rhythmic uh, overarch of the whole piece. So we're going to start with the text straight away. Now is the winter of our discontent. Or are we going to start with... Um, some sort of slow uh, uh, fade in to kind of lull our audience in and then let the text grow out of that. Um, it, physical theatre is just another tool belt to help with what is already available to you if you're playing with Shakespeare. Mm. Do you think in the rehearsal room or the classroom that there's a need to start with the text on the page or can you approach it as physical theatre in the first place? If you're lucky enough to see a production of it, um, absolutely start there. Because although what I was saying before, if you're going to perform it, you need to understand every single word in the sentence that you're saying or your acting partner is saying. If you are absorbing Shakespeare simply as a scholar or as a student, then you don't necessarily need to understand every single word. It is a different way of absorbing the material. And if you see a production, if the actor or mm. actors have done their job and they understand exactly what they're saying and then they're adding all of this other excellent performative storytelling theatrics on top of it, um, then the student just simply gets to absorb a, a, an experience and it will be an experience that, that will hopefully access a different part, a, a visceral part of their human, far less intellectual far less cerebral and it'll drop down into um, kind of into their nervous system. They mm. will recognise emotions that they hopefully have understood or felt or experienced before, yeah? I mean, they'll understand fear, they'll understand anger, they'll understand jealousy, they'll understand in love. They will understand um, power struggles of lower status people with higher status people and either the drama or the comedy that ensues from that. So, um as a, as a student, as an absorber, a receiver of Shakespeare, as an audience member, um, absolutely you don't need to start with the text first and foremost. Um, potentially, I'm not going to say it is, but potentially it's a mistake that there's such an emphasis placed on it in English. Potentially, dare I even say it, although I'm glad Shakespeare is studied in schools, potentially it's a mistake to put Shakespeare in the subject of English. Mm. Because they're plays. Yeah. They are not poems. Put his sonnets in there, absolutely. Um, maybe, I mean, content pending, it's probably not a great idea, but you could put his poems in there. <laughs> um, but his plays are plays. I, I don't recall studying Chekhov in English. Mm. I don't recall studying David Williamson in English because they're plays. Um, it, look, I love that students get access to Shakespeare. And if you're not studying drama, I love that students get access to Shakespeare. Is there a way that maybe we can spice it up and not um, sit around and analyse the text as, as 
as we might analyze uh, other poetry. Yeah, maybe there's an argument for that. Um, I, I do think these words were written to be uh, told through a visceral human storytelling experience. They were lived to be theater. Mm. I think that there is more and more drama um, being put into the English syllabus as a form of writing, like poetry, like fiction, like nonfiction. Um, so that form is really important. But I think you're coming back to how do we teach that uh, so that it lives as a play and not as a text form on the page. That's what, not what it's designed for, even if we're studying it as a, as a drama form. Mm. I mean, this could be a really cheeky thing for me to say, but if we're studying form, um, then uh, before we even pick up the text of Shakespeare, we know we need to go and see what the a desired finished product is. Yes. And we need to see what the form of performance is. So we need to take every single English student that's going to study Shakespeare. We need to take them to a performance of Shakespeare. And then we come back to the classroom and we, if we're starting and studying it for form, we need to go, well, what was the format? Ah, oh, there's a whole pile of elements that are in um, the white space around the text in yes. that book that is a play. There is a sound score. There is breath. There is emotion. There is costuming. Um, there is props and, and battles um, or, or whatever there is that you've seen in that particular performance of Shakespeare. Um, and so just as important as iambic pentameter and however many syllables and whether it's iambic or troaic or la la la, if we're talking form, then let's not leave out the fact that the form also includes emotion and this and this and this and this and this. In the same way that if you study film in English, you mm. probably watch the film and then you're <laughs> looking at film form. Where's the cuts? Where's the, the edit? Do they use a montage? Do they use eight? Like in the previous film that I made, it was a running joke that the director always has to put in a montage in every film she makes. Um, that's a shout out to you, Monica Zanetti, if you're listening. But yes, so if we're studying Shakespeare in English for the sake of form, and, and that's a wonderful thing, let's talk about form and what it really is. Let's talk about what a play, what theatre is. And again, we kind of come back to that question of access, don't we, which we talked about before, you know, how much access do we have? And potentially there's a little bit more um, in our hopefully heading to be post-COVID world. We, that hope. we have and access. I'm fully aware that it's very easy for some actor to jump onto a podcast and be like, if I was running the English department, um, and, and so I do respect the limitations that are there. Um, this is me simply speaking to an absolute wish list. If money was no obstacle, if the distance of Australia's country was no obstacle, um, this 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 is the the utopia as to you know how how I think Shakespeare could be taught in English. But that's how we need to start is what do we want to see? How do we want it to look before we can answer anything else, I think? It's good to dream big. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, mm. Amy, absolutely. There's a lot of research about the use of Australian accents uh, and, you know, I've spoken to Simon Ward about the use of voice and we've talked about accents before in productions of Shakespeare's plays. Do you think there's a physical equivalent of an Australian vocal accent? Do we have a physical imprint that's distinctly Australian? So 
I'm going to ruin the podcast bubble here and say you gave me a heads up about this question before and I have been really, really nutting out this answer and I don't know. In the world of dance, which is arguably not physical theatre because the world of dance is about having form, i.e. ballet, has this posture and this posture. There is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And it has a cultural lineage. We turn our toes out and show off our calves because of the French court, right? Um, In the world of dance, uh, I think Indigenous Australians, absolutely there is is a flavour, there is a voice. Um, In all of their dances, there um, there are steps for want of a better word. Um, When we play the kangaroo, this is how we do the movement across the stage Um, or, or, you know, any other kind of um, example of that. You you can see in uh, in the continent of Africa, the little bit I know of African dance, um, these are the movements that that have grown out of their culture. Um, Physical theatre, however, is is a different kettle of fish it's hard for me to answer this because really the the, the trainings that I've done, um, they aren't an Australian training. Um, they are the Suzuki method of actor training, which comes out of Japan. Mm. Um, and absolutely, there is a strong Japanese cultural voice in that, um, that, that grew out of... Um, theatre uh, being um, so tainted by the newness of television that suddenly Mr Suzuki's actors, um, well, not his actors, but he was looking at Japanese performers going, you're suddenly only your head. Let's get some movement. Let's get some physical, visceral Mm. body back into performance again. So he created a bunch of training. and, And really to kind of debunk Mr Suzuki, all of the Suzuki exercises came out of I need a chorus of uh, witches to um, come onto the stage and I've just got this great idea. Um, They're walking on the blade edges of their feet. So I will create this exercise where I will coach my actors to walk on the blade edges of their feet. And and what the Sydney company kind of did then is like, great, we're going to steal that exercise and we'll use it just to get us more aware of the blade edges of our feet. So... That's one part of physical theatre. The other thing that I'm very versed in is viewpoints. Viewpoints is American. Mm. So, so you know, and, and that came out of the world of dance. Mary Overly created six and Bogart went, hmm, you're on to something, Mary, um, created it and made the nine viewpoints, which we now sort of know of as the theatre viewpoints, not the dance viewpoints. Um, is, is that culturally American? Maybe. Um, the company Zen Zen Zoe and Chop Logic that I currently work for are uh, run by Australian artists who have done work with City Company and they've now brought it back as kind of secondhand ways to use these um, practices of physical theatre. Uh, we train in Australian heat. Um, we love to be barefoot. Um, does that make our art then Australian? I, I don't know. Maybe. Is it Australian because we're Australian artists making it? Um, it's it's a very difficult thing to answer. Um, is there a Australian physical theatre voice? I think if the training methodologies and especially viewpoints I'm talking about are doing their job well, then no, there isn't because we've absorbed the tools and we're making choices 
because of the work, not because we want to make it Australian necessarily. We're, we're choosing to create this project, whatever it is, Shakespeare or contemporary work or otherwise, and the, the, the physical theatre training helps us to make whatever we're choosing to make that world, that genre. I don't, I don't know that it's going it, to, it's, that it has an Australian brand or, or voice or aesthetic to it, unless mm. we want it to. Mm. And if we want it to, what does that look like? If we turn down well, the soundtrack, will we be able to tell it's Australian if it's out of context? I mean, I think this is why we're a fascinating country. We're, we're kind of a, a massive collection of mini subcultures. Like, what is Australian? Mm. Is it the isn't it is it you know regional farmer out on his land with his you know uh, twenty thousand head of cattle? Um, yeah. Is it Indigenous Australians? They've been yeah. here the longest time, sixty thousand mm. years. Mm. Um, is it uh, I don't know, gentrified um, city, yuppie Australian. Is it, what, what is Australian? Um, we can't even decide what the hell we're doing with the 26th of January. Some of us yeah. are celebrating it. Some of us are saying, I'm sorry, that's invasion day. No, thank you. Wake up. Mm. Like, uh, I, I, what is Australian? Because I don't know that we actually have a collective national identity. In fact, I think we have quite a schism um, and, and uh, a, a mass of unrepresented um, voices that are screaming, Amy. And I think we have a bunch of people in power intentionally not listening, unfortunately. So, mm. so how do you make an identity out of that? I don't, I don't know. I'm not a, again, I didn't, I didn't do cultural studies at university. So I'm, I'm asking the questions. I have no answers, I'm afraid. <laughs> I hope we're still asking the questions, you know, some of those, yes, let's answer. Um, but I hope we still ask the questions of who we want to be and, and what that looks like for many, many decades to come. Mm. Yes, but some of those let's answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If we turn to your upcoming production with Belle of Comedy of Errors, it's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. You've been cast as Dromeo of Syracuse in the uh, upcoming production. How do you inhabit a character such as Dromeo in your own body? What physical exercises do you do? Give me a little bit of insight into Julia's process here. <laughs> um, uh, uh, what, what's the first part? How do I inhabit a character such as Dromeo with absolute joy and relish? Yeah. Um, so a little bit of context to this play. April 2019, I get a phone call from the amazing Janine Watson saying, hey, I'm directing this show. Would you like to be involved? Uh, how do you feel about a national tour with Belle Shakespeare? Is that something that you're interested in? And before she could even finish the sentence, I'd said a massive yes. Yeah. Um, so I knew that I got the joy of playing this role back in 2019. And then, of course, a bunch of things, you know, COVID hits and the production is first cancelled and then reinstated. And so it's been three, over three years since getting the role before I get to step into the rehearsal room. Um, a large portion of what I know I'm going to do and what I've begun to do with Dromeo of Syracuse comes from the fact that I know Janine Watson is directing the show. Mm. So working with Janine 
and knowing that her production kind of began, um, you know, she gets the, the great joy of what is the world, what is the vibe, what's the rhythm, what's the, what's the tone of this show. And she's kind of had many open conversations with me saying that um, the casting of me in this role very much is a guide to what she wants to do with this show. This is a very rare privilege for an actor. Um, this is basically code for saying, hey, Jules, can you jump up on stage and do the Jules thing? <laughs> so, um, and, and you know I love my metaphors, Amy. I don't know how many hundred I've already used on this podcast. <laughs> but um, if, if we were going to talk about, because actors often say, you know, I, I get into character by my shoes, yeah, <laughs> rehearsing my high heels or whatever. Um, there have been so many roles where I have used physical training techniques and things, but it's always been to kind of um, focus in on one way or curb this or um, oh, the, the, the play requires heels and period dresses, great. That's obviously gonna you know, dictate my physicality or oh, it's supernaturalism, great. Quiet the body um, and just do what the naturalism needs. Just let the text, let the actions and the emotion and the, and the relationship drive it. Um, with this play, uh, it, to continue my metaphor, it's like I get to be barefoot. So instead of like fit into this mold or work with these restrictions, it very much feels like, hey, let your 10 toes wiggle freely in the sand. Um, a lot of my natural way that I want to use my body and express with my body, um, I am being not just um, allowed, but encouraged to do. Um, the beautiful, beautiful human playing my twin, um, Ella Prince, uh, she was cast alongside me a, a couple of years ago as well. Um, we, we had a wonderful callback chemistry test audition experience together um, where Janine was just so thrilled that the two of us seemed to have um, same kind of physicality. I don't know where that's come from. I like to think we're twins in real life. She's definitely <laughs> like a super duper human. Um, and so together we get to kind of explore and play in this world that I think is, it will come naturally to us. Of course, there'll be differences, um, but I, I can't help. You've seen my hands as I'm doing this Zoom interview with you. I can't help but um, effuse and storytell through my whole body. Like my pinky toe is going to be acting as much as my face on that stage. And I just, I can't wait. I haven't, I haven't had an opportunity like this um, possibly ever. So I cannot wait. In terms of tools and things, um, I'm going to be taking a lot um, out of the viewpoints canon that um, Anne Bogart uh, has kind of created and that I've studied under her. Um, that that I, I can't help but take into every single project I work on. Um, and then physically wise and characterization wise, all the usual things. Uh, he's lower class. Um, he's a servant. Uh, he's kind of got nothing to lose, which means he can risk everything. So it's bold. The world is a comedy. It's a physical comedy. There'll be lots of slapstick. Um, all of those things are guiding my physical choices. I'll probably rehearse barefoot. I might even try and argue for the costume designer that I get to be barefoot for the show. We'll see. <laughs> I think there's an argument to be made there. Put your right. request in he's now. Cool. Maybe yeah. he doesn't have any shoes, right? They've, 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 you know, come off the ocean. Maybe they're waterlogged. <laughs> in, <ridiculous>. this, <laughs> in this kind of role where you've got um, some things dictated to you by the text, but you're given all of this space, how much 
where's the space for Shakespeare? So how much is directly from the text and how much is about you finding the space that Shakespeare leaves you to make those creative choices? I mean, that's the joy of being an artist, isn't it? Um, regardless of actor or director, uh, the, the text gives you um, a, a good chunk. The text gives you like a good 50%. I don't know if you want to put numbers or pie charts to this. Mm. The text is your base um, and you can't create something on stage just kind of because you feel like it if it goes against the text. Mm. Yeah, so, so we have to use the text. Um, but the text really isn't, it really isn't everything. Um, there are no stage directions in Shakespeare. Mm. Um, his stage directions are in the text. Um, he'll tell you if it's day or night, you know. Um, he'll tell you if we're inside or outside. He'll tell you if um, it was a horrendous night with, you know, screens and things and graveyards opening up. Like <laughs> Shakespeare will tell you with the text, so you have to start with it. Um, it's kind of like that's the... That's the skeleton. That's the structure. Um, it's 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 the blank piece of paper with the outline of the bird and the paint by numbers. Mm. Um, but then you get to choose what colours you put in the paint by numbers, or you get to choose how you flesh out that skeleton. Um, it, if if you find yourself finding a, a, a moment of incongruity, you have to go with the text. Otherwise, it's not truthful. Um, but there is, there's plenty of scope to play with. Um, so, for an example, just thinking back to um, directing the excellent actors last year who, um, who played Romeo uh, in, we, we called the play Such Sweet Sorrow, Joe Erskine's adaption of Romeo and Juliet. Um, mm. And we had Ryan Hodson in one team and Will uh, Bartow in the other team playing Romeo. And so just for an example, my favourite speech is Romeo's puts off what light through yonder window breaks um, as he's talking to the balcony. Um, so the text gives you a bunch of stuff, mm. but the jokes that you play around within that, maybe he leaps out at one point. No, he turns around, he runs back. Um, what's he hiding behind? We know he's in an orchard. What are the trees like? What props do you have? What's accessible? What's the joke within the trees? Um, is he in army camouflage? All of these things... Um, that's just the joy of the artist to choose um, what's important, what's your tone, what's your voice, what's, what's, what's the world, I keep using that phrase, that you want to create. Um, and, and I guess in terms of physical theatre um, and movement, it kind of comes back to what you want to use the production for. Yeah, if it's a piece of theatre in education, um, you predominantly probably want to use it to engage young humans. Um, if it's, if it's oh, I can't think of another example, if, you, if you're doing something as an edgy new way of exploring Shakespeare, for example, putting colloquial song in there as uh, the lovers are doing with Bell Shakespeare later on, um, mm. you're going to have a different bunch of things that you want to do with your show. Um, and so maybe your physical choices are guided by that. Suddenly everyone's I don't know, rock music world or whatever. I can't wait to see what they're going to do with the lovers. Yeah. Um, so I think the choices around the text um, are, are the joy and really a 50%. Um, whether you're coming at it from a physical theatre point of view or, or, or not, you've, you've got that room for creative licence. Mm, it's that, that Shakespeare, for me, writes enough to, to make me feel safe and, like, mm -hmm. he gives me enough guidelines 
but yet there's still all that room to play and find nuance. Um, and that's why we're still performing them, right? This is exactly what I was going to say. I mean, why why do we still go back to the theatre even though we know the story of Hamlet? Mm. Yeah. Speaking of which, go and see Hamlet. Harriet Gordon Lovett is uh, Gordon Dye is amazing in it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is there one play or one role that means more to you than others? You've talked about Romeo and Juliet and Dream and Hamlet. Is there one that you, your heart still skips a beat? It's Romeo and Juliet. It has to be. I, yeah. I love that play in high school. I, I love directing it for the players last year. Um, I, I actually used the monologue, my favourite monologue in that play, um, the monologue of Romeo's when I auditioned for the players and I went, stuff this thing of having to just do the girls' pieces. I, I like all of the text. I want to play the boy roles. Um, and so I was really bold and back in 2011 um, auditioned with Romeo's But Soft What Light Three Yonder Break, Breaks monologue um, to get a spot in the players. And clearly it was crazy enough to have worked. So, yes, that that's my favourite play. Um, and I just, I love it because um, I love love. Mm. I am a soppy romantic <laughs> at heart. I'm an optimist at heart. I think uh Love is probably one of the greatest reasons why our souls chose to jump into the human experience um, and connect. Yeah, you could substitute the word connection for love. Um, and I mean, that play is all about it, whether it's familial love, um, uh, bro or mateship love or something different or uh, uh, um, romantic love. Um, the love of even Nurse and Juliet as opposed to Mum and Juliet, mm -hmm. the love, the connections in that play, um, they're just, they're so human, they're so real. Um, and it, it kind of, in my opinion, um, gets the best of both worlds because it's a comedy up until Mercutio dies and yeah. then it's a tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just, yeah, it's it, it's a play that um, ticks so many of the boxes. How could it not be someone's favourite? Well, we're all allowed to have our favourites, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I love your reasons for that one being yours too. Beautiful. What's your favourite, Amy? Oh, don't ask Throwing me that. you in the hot seat now. <laughs> Do you know what? I... I don't think I can answer that because it totally depends on where I'm coming from. So I love Dream because I've dealt in it quite a lot. So I find a lot of things in it. I love Tempest because I've sat inside it, um, you know, as an actor. I just, and of course, love the tragedies. I, I just love it all. <laughs> so there's not really a, a clear cut answer. And I think the answer probably changes day to day, depending on how I'm feeling too. I think this is the perfect answer from the person making the podcast that needs to love everything. <laughs> You're allowed and to. You can get away with it. <laughs> Shakespeare didn't write that into Romeo and Juliet, the love of all his plays. You know, he might have written familial love and, and friendship love. Where's the love of theatre, really? He... In Hamlet <laughs> with the actors, words, words, words. <laughs> Shooting action to the word, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes. Shakespeare yeah. loved. Shakespeare loved all of his plays. I think. I reckon. Yeah, I wonder if you asked him what what would be his favourite. <sighs> yeah, there's a play in that. Yes. <laughs> yes, and probably some um, receipts for what brought in the most money at the time. 
For sure, for sure. <laughs> with that in mind, you know, we like to finish the episode with my guests reading their favourite lines or speech. I wonder if you've chosen something from Romeo and Juliet for us. You uh, have wondered correctly, Amy. <laughs> I can't go past it. It's such a beautiful, beautiful um, speech that depicts the absolute giddiness of what it is to be head over heelsly surprised with being in love. Absolute swept off your feetness. And hey, I, I warned you, I am a soppy romantic. So, <laughs> of course, I'm going to read Romeo's but soft monologue. Lovely. Soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vest delivery is but sick and green, and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. It is my lady. Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses, I will answer it. <clears throat> I am too bold. Tis not to me she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. Goodness oh, don't me. you just fall in love with him? <laughs> this is a teenage boy, Amy. This mm. isn't like, you know, teenage boys smell. I love them all. They do. <laughs> but teenage boys don't talk like that, but he does because he's, he's really infected by love for the first time. God, it's good. And I think I'm particularly lucky to have seen that as well. Uh, our listeners will, will hear, obviously, and it's incredible to hear, but just your clear joy and full physical commitment to, to the text um, and to this character. My pinky toe is in love with Juliet, absolutely. <laughs> Such a pleasure, Julia. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Such a joy to be on this podcast. You've been listening to Let Him Roar Again, a podcast recorded by Amy Perry amid the tall blue gums of Darug country. Performance of Bottom's Lines from A Midsummer Night's Dream by the phenomenal Simon Ward. <laughs>